death finds everyone. Everything, really. It is inescapable. And it is final. Your death, for instance, is not a question of if, but when. And when it happens, there is no changing it. Or is there? Are those the rules of death? This is a story about life, death's primeval enemy. It's a story about where life, that precious elixir, is found, what it looks and smells like, and how to find it when all seems lost. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Poplar trees towers over the landscape, each trunk tall and straight, the branches crowded with glossy green leaves quivering in the muted wind that blows from the west. A poplar's leaves are unique, four lobes, rounded, and the top of the leaf snubbed, like it's been cut off. Further down the trunks, the lower branches of these trees hang heavy with strange fruit, arched, skin adorned with intricate designs, the insides exposed, revealing not seeds, but strings. They're harps. Still further down, at the bottom, a man sits with his back against the trunk staring into the water nearby. They call it the Kibar. It's still and muddy, and it is not a river. It's an irrigation channel, cut like a knife wound into the once dry, desolate landscape, straight as a bronze blade, inorganic, unnatural, and the only source of water for the refugee camp where this man lives. His name is Ezekiel. It's his 30th birthday, and he's thinking of home. Home is Jerusalem, the holy city, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Hebrews, the place where today Ezekiel would have been officially beginning his work as a priest of Yahweh. If he was in Jerusalem, he'd be donning his priestly garments, adjusting the ephod and the breastpiece, the emerald and sapphire, topaz and ruby, onyx and jasper, glinting in the sunlight streaming into the temple courtyard. But he's not in Jerusalem. This is Babylon, 
where he and tens of thousands of other Israelites live in exile, made captive by the enemies of Yahweh, who'd become the agents of Yahweh because the Israelites had made themselves enemies of Yahweh. It was always there, of course, lurking. Every so often, the Hebrews' rebellious hearts would get the best of them. They'd crave the proximity and predictability promised by the idols of the adjacent nations. They'd bristle at the accountability required by Yahweh, and they'd wander. Freedom would turn into slavery as they became addicted to the objects of their affection, money, power, sex, violence. It had happened again and again over the years, ever since the genesis of their nation, it seemed. But for a while, it had been out of hand. Corruption, infidelity, blatant idolatry, oppression of the poor, it was everywhere. And for Yahweh, it wasn't just his children sinning, it was their souls slain by sin, murdered one by one by an enemy they knowingly embraced, one child after another, killed, the bodies piled like a mass grave. He had to stop it. And so five years ago, Yahweh stepped in, brought Babylon in all her violent might against Jerusalem, sacking the city and conquering the people of Judah, bringing so many of them, the most skilled, the most educated, east to Babylon, and leaving the rest in Judah to work the land and pay tribute to their new lords. It's hard to know who has it worse, the ones who stayed or the ones who were carried away to this strange land. No, surely them. Israelites like Ezekiel, wrenched from his home, spending every day now longing for the beauty, the familiarity, the life that he had in that place. Watching the sun set every night in ugly, alien, lifeless Babylon. His nation, their dreams extinguished. The whole place so full of death. Is being a captive different than being a slave? Yes. Surely their forefathers had it worse in Egypt, making bricks day in and day out, whipped like dogs by their taskmasters. This is different. But it's not freedom. No one can leave. Most all of the Jews are cordoned off in their own ghetto on the banks of this ditch. Home fades like a dream, the memory growing dimmer the longer they spend here. Ezekiel and the Jews try desperately not to forget the holy city, the hills, Mount Zion, the olive trees, the brook Kidron, their families' houses. They tell stories to their children to preserve the precious memories of their homeland. It feels like drawing pictures in the sand. Toddlers now walk among them who've never stepped foot in Jerusalem. How long will this last? 
will these children have children who've never seen the temple, who've never known the one for whom Solomon built that magnificent place? Meanwhile, the Babylonians treat them like a sideshow, their culture reduced to caricature. Ezekiel's noticed that the musicians may have it worst in this regard. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, their captors yell, like telling a dog to bark on command, calling for the songs about Yahweh and their life with him before all of this. What do these songs even mean to the people of Babylon? Nothing. But the Babylonians like how much they mean to the Jews. They can tell the songs come from deep inside of them. And that's interesting. Intriguing. It's voyeurism. In spite of it all, they do want to play them. Ezekiel can see it in the musician's eyes. They long for that music. The lyrics heavy with happiness, the notes that sound like home, the chords prismatic and beautiful, like their God. But Yahweh is not here. How can they sing the songs of Yahweh in a foreign land? They can't. And so they've hung their harps in the poplar trees by the kibar in protest, in grief, in resignation. Ezekiel hates the sight of them swinging there, the limbs like gallows. But it does seem right. Suddenly, the sky above the canal darkens. A strong north wind blows through the poplars, the leaves violently dancing to the discordant sounds of the harps as the air rushes across their strings and knocks the instruments against the trees. Ezekiel shields his eyes from the dust in the air and looks up at the sapphire clouds. But it's not clouds. It's one cloud, rimmed with an almost blinding light fire flashes inside of the cloud and at the center of the fire an amber glow Ezekiel can't take his eyes off of and as he watches something emerges from the amber what Ezekiel sees that day he'll try to describe in writing but words cannot do it justice he gazes at this extraordinary sight until it's clear that this is a vision of the glory of Yahweh himself. He hits the ground prostrate. He tries to catch his breath, a thousand questions in his mind, but this one looms largest. What is Yahweh doing in Babylon? That is the beginning of his call. Though he will not serve as Yahweh's priest in Jerusalem on this, his 30th birthday, Ezekiel will serve as Yahweh's prophet in Babylon. It will be difficult, though, says Yahweh. The people, my people, will not listen to you. Corpses are notoriously deaf. Sure enough, they do not listen. And Yahweh 
almost in response to their refusal, pursues more and more graphic ways of communicating. He has Ezekiel build a tiny model of Jerusalem and stage an attack on it, demonstrating the threat of another Babylonian siege back home if the people don't change. Yahweh has Ezekiel shave off his hair and cut it up with a sword. Ezekiel plays the role of the Day of Atonement scapegoat, laying on his side before the Jews for over a year and eating only food cooked over excrement, a foreshadowing of the horrible sustenance the people of Jerusalem will be forced to survive on during the impending siege. Surely they will change and avoid the fierce judgment of Yahweh, avoid the destruction of the holy city, the temple. But then, seven years after Ezekiel begins his work as a prophet, an escapee arrives from Jerusalem with the news. The city has been taken again. And this time, destroyed, burned, judged. Word is that Nebuchadnezzar did unspeakable things to King Zedekiah and his sons. What's worse, Yahweh informs Ezekiel, the disciplined people still have not changed. The idol worship, the brutality, none of it has stopped. This is when, surely, the last ember of hope in Ezekiel's heart goes black. As the months pass, the messages Yahweh gives Ezekiel to deliver become strange, even for him. He's telling Ezekiel to direct his prophecies to inanimate things, mountains and valleys and city ruins, as if they're alive, or could be, as if they are subject to Yahweh's command, as if they could obey him. Perhaps they're symbols, metaphors. Yahweh clearly has a proclivity for truth taught in pictures. He looks at his world and sees sermons everywhere, truth in fields and on farms, in rivers and ravines, in animals and adoption and adultery. Everything, a lens pointing to a deeper reality. Eventually, one picture will steal the show. One day, the hand of Yahweh rests on Ezekiel. That's how Ezekiel will later describe it. It feels like Yahweh's hand on him. Just like that day on the banks of the Kibar. All of a sudden, he's flying or racing or swimming, moving somehow through space and time, the world rushing past him until everything stops. Ezekiel finds himself standing in the middle of a valley. He's with Yahweh. Is he home? Has the Lord finally brought him home? No, he's never seen this place before. It's just as foreign as the refugee camp in Babylon. But it's worse. Something is wrong. There are 
bones everywhere. What slaughter field is this? How many animals died here? And how did they die? He's prompted forward by Yahweh, tiptoeing almost to avoid the bones. There are too many though. They crunch sporadically under his feet like walnuts. Then Ezekiel glimpses an unmistakable shape. The curve, the twin caves flanking a triangular abyss. It's a human skull. Everything in his body tenses, recoils when he realizes all of these bones are human. It's a layered response, the primal reflexive terror of being surrounded by corpses, but also the religious repulsion bred into him early on. Jews become unclean in the presence of a dead human body. But priests, priests are squarely prohibited from any such contact. What is Yahweh up to? The two walk together across the length of the valley with no sign of an end to the littered remnants. It's an enormous mass grave. And then, at Yahweh's urging, they turn around and cross again. This time, Ezekiel realizes how long ago these people must have died. There's no meat left on these bones. Every scapula, every clavicle, every metatarsal is dry, entirely void of fluid, moisture, the smell of decomposition even, any trace at all of life. Son of man, says Yahweh, his voice breaking the dead silence. Can these bones live? What do you say when Yahweh asks you about the future? There are many wrong answers to that question. Can these bones live? Of course not. Neck deep in mystery here in this valley, Ezekiel understands so little. One thing he knows though, dead things stay dead. But this is not a time to plant flags on the tiny hills of his knowledge. This is a time to defer. Sovereign Lord, replies Ezekiel, you alone know. And he's right. Yahweh says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Preaching to inanimate matter again. And still, this is not the strangest thing he's been told to do as a prophet. Strangeness is a hallmark of Yahweh's. Ezekiel noticed that from the beginning. Nothing the way he'd do it. No message, no vision the same way twice. A persistent defiance of convention, of expectation. And along with this strangeness, might. Might greater than his ability to perceive it even. Ezekiel is 
terrified of Yahweh. And somehow, the times he's been fully aware of Yahweh's fearsome presence are the times Ezekiel has felt the safest. The prophet stands up straight, looks at the chalky shapes, and raises his voice. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He continues with Yahweh's script. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Somewhere deep in the heart of this valley of the shadow of death, a femur carves a shallow line in the dust, dragged across the ground by an invisible hand. Somewhere else, a handful of human teeth, molars and bicuspids and incisors, strewn like dice on the soil, tumble resolutely toward a jawbone. A rattling sound fills the air as clavicles and ribs, vertebrae and ulnas, jigsaw pieces of skull and scattered phalanges bump past one another and eventually collide in orderly arrays. Ezekiel's eyes widen as a sternum, perhaps, crawls across his foot. As they move, the bones come alive. Red and yellow marrow courses through their vacant cavities, manufacturing millions of blood cells. Collagen fibers are endowed with new vitality. Osteocytes awaken and set osteoblasts and osteoclasts to work. The bones are not dry anymore. Skeletons now take form, thousands of them stitched together, prone, the valley full of new shapes, ordered and white, like a field ready for harvest. Ezekiel, trembling now, faces the skulls, their empty eye sockets gazing vacantly up, down, sideways, and continues the prophecy given to him as Yahweh looks on. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. He winces a bit, no doubt, at the thought of what is, apparently, about to happen. At the sound of his words, Yahweh's words, pink tissue wraps itself, layer upon layer, around the bones of one skeleton after another. How many are there? 50,000? Twice that? The sounds are now wet, squishy, as myofibrils woven together on some unseen loom form muscle fibers. Muscle fibers wind into fascicles, fascicles wind finally into muscles bound by membranes of silvery connective tissue. Acetylcholine gushes from the cells, allowing myosin to bind with actin so that the muscles can contract and move the nascent legs and fingers and lips. But there is no movement yet. They all lie there, limp. Ezekiel looks on, transfixed, as now the flayed corpses are clothed. 
Keratinocytes multiply and spread like floodwaters across the expanse of muscles, the dermis first and then the stratum basale followed by the stratum spinosum, the stratum granulosum, the stratum lucidum, the stratum corneum. Let there be skin. Melanocytes materialize, saturating each epidermis, tinting it the color of olive wood. With the skin come nerve fibers and blood vessels, hair follicles and sweat glands. The hurricane of creation persists, one fully formed body and another and another and another. It's astonishing. But Ezekiel can't help but notice there is no life here, not as such. The prophet stands beside Yahweh, surveying what can only be described as a horde of cadavers. There is no breath in them. Yahweh speaks again, prophesy, son of man, to the breath. This is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. Ezekiel calls. The sleeves of Ezekiel's robe flutter and then dance. The leaves of the trees on the mountainsides flanking the valley quiver as the wind blows from the west and east and south and north. The breeze becomes a gale whistling through the valley, dust and grass and beetles swept up in the tempest. Ezekiel shields his eyes, squinting behind a raised forearm as the gusts get stronger and stronger. At his feet, the mouth of one of the bodies opens, drinking in the wind. Its nostrils flare as if newly inhabited. In the corner of his eye, Ezekiel notices its fingers twitch, flex, grasp. Ezekiel's mind possibly flashes back to the stories his mother told him as a child, the stories of a garden where Yahweh breathed and brought dust and bone to life. All around him, the lumps of bone and flesh and skin begin to stir. They push up on their knees, and then, as armor presents itself on their chests and thighs and weapons and shields appear in their hands, they stand blinking, breathing, alive. Human beings, awake and animate, able to sing and cry and catch fireflies and warm their hands over a campfire and hold a baby and fight. All of them are outfitted for battle, a vast army. Ezekiel, surely, his heart already brimming with fear and wonder, feels something new as he stares in awe at this endless expanse of soldiers. Dread. The last time he saw a force like this, it was the army of Babylon sweeping into his home, ferocious and brutal, the instrument of a jealous god. Ezekiel's heart races. What terrible judgment does Yahweh have in store? Son of man, 
says the voice, replacing the sound of the rushing wind. These bones are the people of Israel. What? They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Can Yahweh change the rules of death? What about what his people have done and who they've become? What about the choices they've made and the idols they've exalted and the shame they carry? The assassin they've invited into their arms. So many of them have left Yahweh and it, it's been so long. It wouldn't be one resurrection. Israel at this point is a mass grave, their souls beyond rotten, empty of any trace of life, like dry bones. The army stands before Ezekiel, inhaling, exhaling, making eye contact with him. Something rises inside of the prophet, something dormant, unfamiliar. Hope. And then Yahweh says this, a message to his people, to Ezekiel. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Home. And then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh. Yahweh, the one who gives life, the one who will bring his people home where life awaits. Ezekiel sheds a joyful tear. It cannot come soon enough. Years from now, Ezekiel will find himself still in Babylon, still watching the sun set every evening by the banks of the Kibar Canal, still hundreds of miles away from his precious Jerusalem. He doesn't know it yet, but he will die in this place, in this same camp next to this same ditch. Would it break his heart to know that? Would he feel betrayed? Perhaps. But a couple of decades after his initial calling, Ezekiel aged, certainly, but still strong. He'll find that Yahweh shows him one final vision. It's a river. It flows from the entrance of a temple. It's not the temple Ezekiel remembers. The waters stream down through the landscape of Judah and into the desolate Dead Sea Valley. 
As the river floods the valley, it gives rise to myriad forms of life, foliage and flowers, schools of fish, trees of all kinds with year-round fruit and medicinal leaves fluttering in the breeze. Ezekiel will watch in awe as Yahweh shows him the home he remembers and longs for, but better. The Dead Sea, alive, verdant, teeming, the center of a new Eden. It looks, it looks like a good place to sing. Where is this exactly, this new temple? He's got to go there, it's perfect. The kind of place where life eclipses death, where what he saw in the valley that day could actually happen. Surely it's Jerusalem. This is why he's longed for it, dreamt about it, prayed toward it. But then Ezekiel is given the name of this new garden city, this wellspring of life. It is not Jerusalem. Named after its defining quality, it's called simply Yahweh Shammah. Yahweh is there. That night, Ezekiel lays his head down and listens to the breeze rustling the leaves, the frogs singing on the banks of the kibar, the harps bumping gently against the trunks of the poplars, making strange and beautiful sounds as they're played by the wind. The whole place, so full of life, almost as if Yahweh is there. Hey, Justin here. Thanks a whole lot for listening. If you haven't already, you should definitely subscribe. A new episode of Holy Ghost Stories drops every other Monday. Don't miss one. And a big thanks to all of you who are sharing this podcast with friends. Thank you, thank you. Let's keep getting good stories into the ears and hearts of as many people as we can. If you're on Instagram, come say hi. Just search Holy Ghost Stories. Till next time.